Let's pray. God, uh, we do thank you for that song and for uh, the fact that you really are the strength and the source of our life. And if we don't hear anything else this morning, God, may we hear that. Uh, we have a tough topic before us as we talk about this whole idea of the economy and what you might be up to. And so, God, I pray that we might uh, be humble, we might uh, be wise, and may your word guide us. And uh, may you be pleased with what we're about to talk about. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned when uh, I was praying there, we're going to be talking today about God and the economy. Uh, God and the economy. And let me just make it clear right up front that we are talking about God and the economy. Not the economy with some spiritual stuff or God thrown in. What we're going to be talking about this week and next week is who God is and where God is and how he might be responding with all that's going on with our current economic turmoil. And so once again, it's really important that all of you know, and if you're visiting here today, it's really important that you know this, that I stand up here today as a pastor and as a theologian, certainly not as an economist. Those of you who know me know that that's a given. And so I'm going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about God and our spiritual lives, given the fact that our financial and economic worlds are so tumultuous. And my assumption, and I think it's a good one, is that our economy is a mess. Can I assume that? That all of the indicators point to a struggling housing market, rising unemployment, a bank and credit crisis mixed in with the fact that the Dow has lost an immense amount of value. And as a result of this, it's obvious to myself and the pastors here and our elders that there are a lot of hurting, frustrated, and even scared people even here in our congregation. That's the given that I'm assuming. And hence we're wondering, where is God? in all of this? And what is he up to? And even why is this happening to all of us? And that's what we're here today to wrestle with. Now before we start our wrestling match, I want to make a second preliminary thing very known, and, and this is really important, and that is that I'm choosing today to opt for biblical clarity over and against what I call preaching creativity in assessing God and the economy. In other words, it's going to be clarity versus creativity over the next couple of weeks. And what I mean by that is that I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there are quite a few pastors and people out there who don't mind speaking very pointedly and even creatively as to precisely what God is up to with this downturned economy. We've all heard it. Things like God is punishing America for her sins. Or God is trying to humble us and get our attention. Or God is mad about the last election. Or God is mad about the war. Or God is mad about the morality of Hollywood. I mean, I've heard it all. And though some of those things might very well be true, when I hear some of these things said with such confidence, authority, and creativity, I think to myself, really? You know that. You know precisely what God is up to in all of this. You're able to link the downturn of our economy with exactly what God is thinking and doing when it comes to our country and our world. That is incredibly creative of you. That's what I think when I hear that, folks. And though I'm going to suggest to you a little bit later today some of the things that historically God has been up to in the Bible when difficult times hit his people, and some of these things just very well might fit our circumstances today, my goal, just so you know, is going to be to strive for biblical clarity, and I'm going to be much less concerned about the shock value of preaching creatively, which I find, quite frankly, engages more in dogmatic guesswork than it does really giving people a cogent biblical understanding of where is God 
when this fallen world rears its ugly head, okay? So with that said, let's dive right in, and I want to do two things in our time remaining this morning and into next week, and that is that I want us to wrestle briefly with why God has allowed our country to experience this very rare economic landslide, and then I want us to explore what might God be up to in responding to all the things that are going on in our lives today with the economy. The what and the why, that's what I want to address. And so first, let's deal with the why. Why has God allowed this? And quite frankly, folks, the Bible gives us a very clear and cogent answer as to why bad things happen in this world. And here it is. It's number one on your outline. And that is that a fallen world is going to produce fallen events and cycles, and it's no use blaming God. Could I be more clear than that? A fallen world is going to produce fallen events and cycles. I mean, this is core to the Christian truth claim, and it's no use blaming God. And so, folks, here, here's the deal. When bad things happen in this world, like people getting sick, or when planes crash, or when economies go south, and you also happen to believe in a sovereign, good God who works in and through this fallen, sinful world of ours, there are really only three avenues that you can blame. I mean, they're not all worthy of blaming, but there are three things that historically people have blamed, and that's that you can blame God, because you can claim He's all-knowing and all-powerful and could have stopped it, or you can blame this fallen world, us and all of our fallen structures and systems. Or the Bible mentions a third thing you can blame, and that is evil spiritual forces that work against us behind the scenes, Satan and his dominion. And what you need to know is that though the Bible makes it clear that God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all that happens, I mean, Jesus said that not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his knowledge and will. At the same time, the Bible rarely says that we should use this as some kind of an excuse to blame God when bad things happen. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that when bad things happen, it is almost always part and parcel of living and functioning in a fallen world that is not our home. In other words, it's our fallenness, our decisions, our actions, our fallen world that creates the lion's share of our problems and misfortunes. And to see this in black and white so that you really understand this today, if you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the scriptures up here on the screen. But open up to Romans 8, beginning at verse 22. This is a very revealing passage out of the Bible. And it says this, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, for the sake of clarity today, focus on that twice-repeated word groan or groaning there. Do you see that? Groan or groaning. That's the Greek word stenazo, and get this, it literally means to express discontent, to complain, to sigh, to express oneself involuntarily in face of an undesirable circumstance. And all I can tell you, folks, is that we all do this. We're all familiar with this idea of groaning. So we've all experienced circumstances in our life that are no fun, that we wish we weren't going through, and we find ourselves kind of groaning as a result. And so you're at a sporting event, and your team falls apart halfway through. Like I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. It's been happening to me for 25 years now, okay? So I'm watching the Browns, and they fall apart halfway through. And what do we collectively do as Browns fans? We go, oh, can't believe that's happening. Or more seriously, 
a friend of yours gives you a phone call and says that the lab report came back and that their cancer is back. And what's your response? You go, oh, I can't believe that happened to you. I mean, we all know what it's like to groan, to express discontent when we find ourselves in a not-so-desirable situation. That's what that word means. And so don't miss that the Bible here in Romans 8 is using this simple everyday word that we all know and use, and it ties it to how all of creation feels about itself and even is acting. It says the whole creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then it even ties us to how we as believers, followers of Jesus, who have the spirit inside of us longing for our final redemption, feel about living in our fallen bodies in this fallen world. We groan too, it says. And so please see, it's the fall being talked about here, going all the way back to Genesis 3, when sin entered God's perfect world, and it's telling us here in Romans that if anything is to blame, for the things that befall us, if anything is to cause us to groan, it's this fallen and imperfect world. We groan, and we groan because of the fall. And folks, when you think about it, it only makes sense that if you truly believe and buy into the premise that we live in a fallen and imperfect world, and most people do, in which not only all of its people, but even all of its structures that are made up by fallen people are also fallen, then of course the vast majority of things that happen to us can be pinned on the fall on us and our world, not on God. And as we're going to see just here in a second, this is extremely important in understanding the why of our economy right now. Uh, let me give you an example that most of you will relate to of how I think uh, the Christian worldview thinks about this issue before today. How many times have you ever heard yourself or somebody say, why did God allow so-and-so to get in that car accident? You ever heard somebody say that? Or maybe why did God allow so-and-so to get sick? It's a question I hear all the time. And without trying to sound heartless at all, there are times when I hear people say that that I think to myself, let's break this down logically. So for instance, the idea of why did God allow so-and-so to get in a car accident? And I think, you know, 100 years ago, some guy got a brainstorm idea to make a metal contraption that can go 10 times faster than our bodies were ever made to do, right? And then we got this idea to place this metal contraption uh, atop of 20 gallons of flammable liquid. And then we get in this contraption and we zoom down these man-made highways. And because the law of averages tells you that there's going to be times where they crash, when they crash, we say, why God? Why did you allow that? And if I was God, I'd say, I didn't tell you to make the car. I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says do something like that. And as we're going to see in a second, I think it's great that we did it. Just don't blame God when it doesn't work. Or how about electricity? I mean, 100 years ago, the only time they saw electricity was in a lightning bolt, right? Like, beware of that lightning bolt. And then we decided to harness the doggone thing. And so we took that lightning bolt. Now we have electricity that's lighting all these lights. And once in a blue moon, some person sticks their finger in the socket, right? And it's like off to heaven or whatever happens at that point. Or we've made cell phones. And we stick these things to our ears with all these radio waves and stuff, you know, for five hours at a time. Or how about partially hydrogenated soybean oil? You ever eaten that? <laughs> you have. It's the main ingredient in most potato chips. And it goes right to your arteries. And so I'm amazed when so-and-so says, why did God allow him to have a heart attack? I'm like, look at him. He's a candidate for a heart attack. I mean, it's because of what we eat. And again, don't get me wrong. 
I think it's great, our modern world. I mean, I use all this stuff. It's just that we need to remember that we invented these things and we are fallen. And think about it, folks. When you get fallen people pooling their fallenness together, it's only going to create a certain level of fallenness as a result. And so bringing this back to the economy in which many of us, to use Romans 8 terminology, are groaning, and some of us groaning big time, I find it fascinating that when I read the Wall Street Journal or when I watch CNN or Fox or whatever news show we watch, that our media is citing three different sources, one or a combination of three different sources as to why our economy is such a mess. Look up here on the screen. And that is that they either cite irresponsible, if not greedy, business practices. We've all heard that, like banks and lending agencies that went crazy on giving loans that they knew they were risky, knew were risky. Or they might cite knowingly insufficient, even lazy governmental oversight agencies. We've all heard that too, like the Fed, legislative panels, subcommittees. I mean, they're slinging mud at each other. Or they might cite unwise, if not likewise greedy, consumers. You know, people who purchased houses they couldn't afford. I love the story that our friend Barry Asmus tells about the fact that during the height of the housing boom in California a few years ago, that there were 1,000 babysitters in San Francisco who applied for it and got approved for million-dollar loans. Now, I got nothing against babysitters. My daughters are babysitters, but I don't think it would be wise for them to borrow a million bucks, do you? I mean, we got a little bit crazy on that level. And so think about it, folks. you got businesses, government, and consumers. That's what the media in various forms tends to blame for this. And my point is not to argue or even comment on which of these three entities I believe are at fault. Not at all. But simply to point out that if any or all of them are to blame, I find it fascinating that none of them are God. But that all of them are fallen people who make up our fallen world. And so say that you personally believe that one or more of these are primarily at fault, and then these do seem to be the three primary options, please see that you're admitting that it's fallen people, whether business, government, or consumers, that have created the mess that we are in. That's why I say it's no use blaming God. Many, if not most times in the Bible, it's our fallen world that causes so much pain. And listen, Christians more than anybody else, should know and understand this. I mean, core to our Christian worldview is the fact that this world is not our home, that it's fallen, and there's going to be times where it deals up a very difficult deck to deal with. It's part of the fall. Now, once you get this, the main retort that somebody could give is this. And that is, well, I get the fallen world thing, Jamie, and that it's primarily to blame for all of this. But you can't deny that God still knew this was going to happen. I mean, he's all-knowing, he's all-wise, he's all-powerful, and as Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his knowledge or will. And so he knew. And if he knew, why did he allow it? And how is he now responding to it all? What is he up to? And these are good questions. And to answer the question of why did God allow our current fallen culture to produce such a fallen economic mess, the answer is the same as to why God has allowed any and all fallenness to run its course since sin entered the world so long ago. And that is that as the scriptures say, and I love this scripture, he is, and I quote, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 
In other words, God could put a mess, an end to all this mess and fallenness. He's God for crying out loud. But then it would be the end of everything, including us who are fallen, and he doesn't want to do this yet. The Bible says that he is patiently waiting for people to wake up, sense their need for him, and turn to him in faith and obedience. And yet until then, we have to contend with a fallen world. I love how C.S. Lewis said this years ago. He said that God, picture him as sort of the grand director of this play of life, this, this play, this drama. And he said, you know, if God wanted to as a director, he could come out on the stage and declare play over. And we all know that when the director comes out on the play, the curtain goes down and the play is over. And he said, but God doesn't want to do that yet because if he declares the play over, then it's over for all of us and it's reckoning time for all of us. And so God, the grand director, is giving us some more time. Time for people to realize their need for him and turn to him. I mean, make no mistake, folks. The Bible says that someday God's going to step in and end it all with the return of Christ. Time is linear in nature, but not yet. And until then, we have to contend, contend with a fallen world that, as we've noted, is going to produce fallen events and cycles. Now, it still does leave the question, however, well, how is God responding to all of this? I mean, I get the fallen world thing, Jamie, but what's God doing in response to this? What is he up to in our time and culture? And even knowing that God could intervene in this fallen world and that he does, what might he have been thinking in sovereignly allowing this time and place in our economy? And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning and into next week taking a stab at the answers to these very, very important questions. Now, in order to enter into this next part of our discussion on God and the economy, I need you all to engage in something with me here. And that is that I need you to give a head nod that you have heard the phrase before. Look up here on the screen. If the shoe fits, wear it. Give me a head nod, hand raise, if you've heard that phrase before, right? Like if you're an American and you're breathing, you've heard the phrase, if the shoe fits, wear it. I have no idea. Where that phrase ever came from, it sounds like something that a mother made up. But sometime in history past, that phrase appeared in our language. And we all know that it simply means that if something applies to you, then don't reject it, but let it apply, right? That it might not apply to everybody universally, but if it applies to you, if the shoe fits, then wear it. And the reason that this is so important to know at this point in our discussion of God and the economy is that in our time remaining today and next week, I'm going to share with you four key things that the Bible says that God has been up to when difficult things happen to his people. Four agendas, at the very least, that God historically has had at various times in allowing a fallen world to rear its ugly head. And please don't miss, this does not necessarily mean that this is precisely what God is up to now, but it could be. And it doesn't necessarily mean that this applies to every one of us, but it just might. In other words, I want to err on the side of biblical clarity here today, give it to you, and let's all say it together, if the shoe fits, wear it. Okay? That's what we're going to do for the rest of our time here today. So, let's list these things. And the first thing that we're going to spend the rest of our time on here this morning that God is many times up to in allowing our fallenness to get in our face is conviction of sin. It's true. Conviction of sin. And specifically in our current economic scene, let's name the sin, and that is greed. Greed. Now, 
I know that the second I mention that word greed, not only can you hear a pin drop, but in a congregation this size, there are multi and varied responses. I mean, some of you immediately when I said greed, shouted in your head, amen, preach it, pastor. Some of you when I mentioned greed, immediately your body language went like this, and you started to get a little bit defensive, right? Remember that old phrase with Arnold, you know, what you talking about, dad? You know, I mean, that's kind of the way you got, right, when I mentioned greed. Others of you started to get a little red-faced with maybe shame. And then there's some of you who are kind of asking the question I want to answer, and that is, what exactly do you mean by greed, Jamie? Because I think that's the key question here. I had a fascinating conversation with uh, Barry Asmus this week. I was so grateful that he took a couple of my calls as I was wrestling with some of this economic stuff, because again, I'm a theologian, not an economist, and at one point I mentioned to him that I was going to be talking about greed. And, and he was so gentle with me. He said, oh, oh, Jamie, Jamie, don't go down that road. Don't be talking about greed. You know, and, and I was a little bit confused by that. I was like, why? I mean, you know, it just seems to make sense. Like, you live in America, you know, let's talk about greed. And, uh, and, and as I started to hear him talk, it hit me that the way that he, in the world that he lives in, processed and talked about greed is very different than what we're going to see in a minute with, with how um, the Bible mentions greed. And as after I asked Barry about this, I realized that in his political economic world, and him being a conservative capitalist economist, that many times when he hears greed, he only hears it in this context, and that is a socialist saying to a capitalist, you greedy pig, right? I mean, that's the way that many socialists sling mud at capitalists. They call them a bunch of greedy capitalist pigs. And so in the political economic world, this term has become inflamed and taken on a meaning that, quite frankly, it's going to be somewhat different than the way the Bible presents this to us. And so the reason I tell you that is this, is that I need you at this point right now to not think politically and economically, but let's just think theologically what God has said to you and me about this thing called greed. Because check this out, folks. I'm going to give you a quick primer here on the biblical perspective on greed. You're going to find this very enlightening. And the Bible actually tells us no less than five things about greed. It's actually a progression that it gives us that builds one upon the other that gives us a life-giving understanding of this thing called greed. So let me quickly give these to you. This is a down-and-dirty primer, a biblical theological understanding of greed. Look up here on the screen. The first thing it tells us is this, is that greed is part and parcel of our fallen sinful nature. It's part and parcel of our sinful nature. So look at what Romans 1, verses 28 and 29 tell us in the context of describing fallen human beings. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's you and us in our pre-converted state. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, uh-oh, and greed. And so more than anything else, folks, see, realize, before we even define greed, that it is in us. Part of our fallen nature listed here in Paul's description of fallen people, which simply means that every one of us, all human beings, are susceptible to greed and its influence. That's what I need you to own with me. That no matter how good you might be, no matter how you might be running on all eight cylinders right now when it comes to your spiritual relational life, all of us as fallen human beings are susceptible to this thing called greed. Now, notice what happens next. Notice how greed works in our lives. The Bible tells us this, and that is that greed begins on the inside, that it's an issue of the heart. It begins on the inside, it's an issue of the heart. 
Look at what Jesus taught us about greed in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, uh uh-oh, deeds of coveting, which is the exact same word, by the way, that in the original Greek that Romans translates greed here. And so don't miss that greed is something that starts on the inside and works its way to the outside. And so here's a good working definition of greed, and that is that it's an inward coveting that begins by placing an incredible emphasis on material things for one's sense of security and well-being. That's all greed is. It's simply you in your mind saying, uh-oh, I don't think I want to depend as God, on God so much for my self-image or the relational base of my life. I think I'm going to put, start putting a lot of stock in material things for my sense of security and well-being. And the Bible says that when you get to that point, when you start to have that battle inside of you, and we all do, and you begin to lose that battle, then you go on to step three when it comes to greed, and here it is, and that is that greed manifests itself in an undue preoccupation then with material things. I mean, it only makes sense, right? Start focusing on material things in your heart for your sense of security and well-being, then all of a sudden now your behaviors are going to start following suit. You know, there's a great story that happened to Jesus when he was on this earth that is just so real life, it's just almost comical. It's found in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 15. Let me read it for you. It says, And someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Pause right there. That is so real life. I've been a pastor for 20, 25 years now, and I can't tell you how many times somebody's come up to me, and I'll say, how was your week? And they'll say, well, guess what? My dad died a while back, and we're having trouble with the inheritance. And my brother, let me tell you what he's doing, and I've just heard that story, right? And and maybe someday it'll happen to me. I hope my brother Pete is listening to this message right now. And uh, it's just a common everyday thing that tends to happen, and it's happening to Jesus here. So look at what he says, verse 14. It says, But he said to this man, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to the man, Beware and be on guard against every form of, oh, here it is again, greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I love that last phrase. That not even when one has abundance does his life, meaning our sense of security and well-being, consist in our possessions. In other words, very simply put, here's what Jesus is saying, that when we place things over relationship, we become greedy. And when we become preoccupied with things to the point that we're tempted to think that our life consists in them, we become greedy. And so when the majority of our time, energy, money, and talent begins to surround possessions and things, the Bible says that your behavior is giving yourself away, that in your heart you're wrestling at the very least, if not caving in, to greed. And so track where we've come from here, folks. This is important. Greed is in our fallen nature. I mean, all of us are susceptible. Greed, secondly, is a thing of the heart that starts on the inside. And then thirdly, it's going to happen in our actions if we're not careful when we start to prioritize people over, or start to prioritize things over people and things consume our time and energy. And yet it's not done there. The Bible goes on to mention two other key things about greed. And so the fourth thing it tells us, and this one is really hard-hitting for you and me, and that is that believers are not immune to greed. It will be a great temptation for us as well. That just because you came to Christ doesn't mean that greed ends. 
but it's going to be a temptation for you too. How, how do we know this? Well, look at how Paul said it to two different churches on two separate occasions. Ephesians 5.3, he says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or, oops, greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And then in Colossians 3.5, he says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desired, and there it is again, greed, which amounts to idolatry. And so i got to simply ask you here, that though Paul is talking so seriously about greed here, if believers were immune to greed, then why would he tell us to beware of it? Right? In other words, why would he mention it in a list of things that as followers of Jesus we need to be very careful of if it wasn't possible for us to fall into it? No, of course we can fall into greed. I mean, we still deal with the fall in our sinful lives just as much, and so Christians can fall prey to this just like anybody else. And yet here's what is so cool, folks, is that the Bible has a track record of always giving us a remedy for our sin. And I don't mean just coming to Christ for forgiveness, though that is the remedy, but also then dealing on a life-on-life level with our sin day in and day out. And so the fifth thing that the Bible tells us about greed is that the remedy for greed is repentance manifested in generosity. Repentance manifested in generosity. You know, that word repentance is hardly used today, right? Like, I can't remember the last time I heard a parent say to their kid, repent, you know, or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's like, seems to be an archaic term. And yet, I think we need to resurrect this term, and I'll tell you why, because the word repentance is a very life-giving term in the Bible. Anytime somebody gets caught in a sin, the Bible comes along and says repent, which simply means to turn from it, like you're facing it right now, doing it, and it just assumes that you're turning from it and going the other way. Repentance, don't miss this, is saying no to that thing in your life that's trapped you and yes to God and committing to finding your satisfaction in Him. And so look at Revelation 3, verse 19. It says, those whom I love, God is speaking, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. But check this out. This is so cool. The Bible doesn't even stop at saying turn from something and find your satisfaction in God, but then it also many times gives us more practical help on what to turn to. So, for instance, if you're berating another individual and calling them bad names or something, the Bible says repent, don't do that anymore, and turn to God and also asking that other person for forgiveness, trying to make amends, right? And when it comes to greed, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. I think the hint here is that what we do in our repentance from greed is to start to practice generosity. It's talking about the church in Macedonia, and it says, Now, brothers, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So pause there. For whatever reason, this church in Macedonia was like experiencing massive blessing from God's grace. And it says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Don't miss what's going on there. They were experiencing an economic downturn as well dealing with lots of unemployment, lots of poverty. But instead of falling into greed, or maybe they did fall into greed, we don't know, but whatever, right now, they were experiencing generosity, the widow's might. They were practicing generosity, and Paul said this is life-giving to their souls and to ours. So, so track this five-fold progression. We're imbued, greed is imbued in our fallen nature, it has inside origins. It's manifested in our undue focus on things. Believers are going to be tempted, and the remedy is repentance and generosity. Now, folks, if you're tracking with this at all, and I know it's some heavy theology, the issue that I need you and I to wrestle with in the few moments we have remaining here this morning 
is that once we understand this, ask yourself, could it be that God is rattling some of our cages in order to see, help us see and deal with our greed? In other words, could it be that like so many Americans, we have fallen into the trap of obsessing on material things. We bought more than we could ever possess or afford. And so God is allowing in his great love and grace this economic downturn so that we might draw, focus more on him and draw our lives back to him. And again, i got to tell you, nobody wants to admit that they're greedy. I mean, I can't tell you the last time somebody came into my office and pastor, I just got to confess to you, I'm a greedy son of a gun. I mean, nobody does that. People confess a lot of sins to me. Nobody's ever come up and said, I'm just greedy. And i got to tell you, I don't confess it either. I mean, I don't sit down over Starbucks and say, I just got to tell you, Lee, I'm really greedy today. I mean, I, I just don't have the habit of doing that. But the reality is, is the Bible says that we just saw, like it talks about it like a scratch CD, that it's going to be a part of our lives. So maybe now it's time to get honest as the church or honest as individuals and say, yeah, you know what, I guess I have fallen into that. And, uh, and maybe that's why God is trying to wake me up here. And please know, folks, that this has nothing to do with whether you're rich or not, whether you make a lot of money or not. I mean, greed is something that can hit a high net worth individual who makes a half a million bucks a year. It can also hit the average Joe making forty or 50000 a year. I mean, greed can affect a guy on the Forbes Top 100 list as well as the service provider down at the corner store. Why? Because it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of possessions over people. It's an issue of obsessing on things for security above what you can afford. It's an issue of generosity. And I believe that one of the first things we need to do in assessing our lives is to kind of just gauge our greed factor, each of us individually, and do some business with God. You know, one of the things that we can't escape as you're processing this for your own life is the indicators of what's happening in our country over the last, say, 30 or 40 years. In other words, there's many, many indicators that show that our country really has gone overboard on material things. Let me just share a few of these with you. They're almost comical. These are all stats from about 2004, 2005, at the height of our economic high. According to the Self-Storage Association, there actually is one, a trade group charged with monitoring things like this, the, our country now possesses about 1.9 billion square feet of personal storage space outside of our home. And so all of this space is contained in over 40,000 facilities owned and operated by about 2,000 entrepreneurs. And according to a recent survey, the owners of one out of 11 homes also own self-storage space. And this represents an increase of 75% since 1995 alone. In fact, in the year 2004, at the height of our boom, we saw a 24% spike in the number of self-storage units on the market. Now, you might be think, thinking, well, big whip. People have been downsizing. No, 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 no. In fact, the National Homeowners Association has cited that in 1973, the average American house was 1,660 square feet, and in 2004, the average house had grown to 2,400 square feet. And so, folks, add up what's happening here. Houses got bigger, average family size got smaller, and yet we still found the need for more than 2 billion square feet of extra space to store our stuff. And you got to ask yourself, what is this stuff that we are storing, right? I mean, what is in these places? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me share with you another statistic. And this is from Harper's Index out of Harper's Magazine 2005. 
and this is going to blow you away. The amount of money that the U.S. spends annually on imported toys, meaning toys for our kids, is $23,631,000,000. Let that sink in a minute. We spend $23 bucks just on toys for our children. And some of you might be saying, well, Jamie, come on, chill out. I mean, we've got a lot of kids in this country, right? Well, that might be true, but the reality is, is that that figure is more than the 10 other countries next in line for how much they spend on toys combined. In other words, we spend more on our toys than the 10 next Western developed countries for our kids. So as a result of this, check this out. The average American kid gets 70 new toys a year. 70 toys a year. I mean, gone are the days where, remember, our parents were like, hey, you know, get one or two oranges for Christmas or something like that, right? I mean, that's like not the case anymore. 70 toys a year, 365 days a year. It's like one every three days or four days or something like that, five days. In 1984, children ages 4 through 12 spent $4.2 billion of their own pocket money. $4.2 billion in 1984. By 2004, that number had climbed to $35 billion that our kids spend just on money that we give them. As a result of this, the average child recognizes logos by 18 months, and by two years of age, they ask for products by brand name. (laughs) I mean, what is going on in our country? And the result of this is debt. It's debt. I I mean, the thing that's probably most sad about all of this is that when you add up the debt figures, and these are 2004, 2005 figures, you realize why we're in trouble. The average number of credit cards per household in 2005, according to Harper's Index, was 12.7. 12.7 credit cards. The average 20-something today owes $16,120 in personal debt, according to USA Today. And in 2004, the Federal Reserve Board revealed that consumer debt, which is credit card debt and personal debt, not mortgage debt, was at an all-time high at $1.5 trillion, which averages out to $18,700 per household. The average debt. And we wonder why we're in trouble. And again, the question that we need to wrestle with, and I know it's hard to wrestle with, is could greed have factored in? Could some of us have just fallen into that bigger and better hunt, trying to outpace those around us? i got to tell you, folks, I've wrestled with this a lot this week and a lot over my life. And here's where I've landed on it. Maybe this will help some of you. And that is that I'm a pastor, and I'm surrounded by the Bible, and Christians all week long. I mean, even if I wanted to, I can't get away from it, right? And so I'm a believer, and I'm surrounded by all of you, and I'm reminded that I'm a believer by my kids, my wife, everywhere I go. And yet, given all that accountability, I look back at the 20 years of my life living in America, upper-middle-class America, and I realize I have struggled with greed at times. I have. I've been more concerned about my next vacation, my next car purchase, than the next sermon I'm giving. Isn't that sad? Not this one, mind you, but isn't that sad? (laughs) There have been times where I have to be honest with myself and do a gut check and say, you know what? I'm greedy. I'm greedy and I'm falling into it and I match it up against the Bible. Forget about socialist, capitalist thing. That's what I'm talking about. I match it up against the Bible and I go, I'm guilty. God help me. And that's what he wants. I think God just wants us to cry out to him and say, help. And and so what is it that we do? With this, we're done. Look up here on the screen because we're out of time. And, And that is that there's a threefold thing that you can do if this at all, if the shoe fits for you, wear it. And that is, first, we've already talked about repent in your heart. Repent in your heart. Find your satisfaction to, in him and, uh, and, and repent. Secondly, commit to dealing with your debt. 
Um, Pat mentioned the Financial Hope Workshop that we're going to be doing. Um, I, I got to tell you, one thing I'm so proud about with John Riley and this workshop, John is the Regional Director for Crown Ministries, is that this Financial Hope Workshop is not just your typical Crown, here let's develop a budget type of thing. It's actually designed for this economy and for the deep recession that we're experiencing right now. So he deals with lots of different issues in that. And so honestly, on May 16th, you might want to consider going to that workshop. It's just been a great hit in our church here. And then thirdly, practice generosity. One of the most powerful, powerful stories in the entire Bible is the story of the widow's might. You all know it. That poor woman who had nothing but gave nonetheless. Because I know as soon as I say practice generosity, some of you are going, Jamie, I got nothing. I got nothing. I mean, if you saw my bank account, what would I be generous with? The widow's might. I, I maybe help somebody else right now that's even worse off than you and see what that does for your soul. Because I will tell you, once you allow generosity to enter in, greed dissipates. So here's what we're going to do next week. We are going to, um, to, to finish this talk on God and the economy and note three other things that God might be up to. Again, if the shoe fits, wear it. But I'll let you know so that you come back that um, this was the hardest one to deal with. All right? So next week will we'll be easy on you, but it'll be a lot easier, very encouraging. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that even when we talk about difficult things, convicting things in our lives, we know we can do so because there's life in them. There's life for our souls when we get honest and when we turn to you. And so, Father, I just want to pray for each one of the people here today that if they might be struggling, if the shoe fits wear type thing with some of the things we've talked about, that, um, God, you would just help them to deal with that with you. I pray, God, that they would recognize we live in a fallen world and that that's no shock or surprise to you and that the fallen world many times is going to run its course in our lives. May that suffice to answer the why question. But then, Lord, may each of us, too, deal with our own individual lives and our church together, maybe even our country together, in processing um, why you have allowed this and what you're up to in the midst of this. And may we turn to you. More than anything, may we turn to you and find our satisfaction in you, we pray. As we're going to talk about next week, Lord, may you show yourself to us a God of provision and pull us out of this time, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.